Hi, my name is Banala Sarami. I'm the host to the Pharmacogenomics for Pharmacists podcast on one of the largest pharmacy podcast network. When I was a student in pharmacy school, I was doing research with Washington University, going to people's homes that are age over 65 who are homebound, looking at all their medications. And I realized all these patients are on the same medications, but they have different side effects or advantages to them. So when I stumbled upon pharmacogenomics, I realized that was the missing piece of why everyone was acting different with the medication. It's all the genetic. So I'm a pharmacogenomics coach and I'm also a medical science liaison for a pharmacogenomics company. I create content on pharmacogenomics, educating providers and sales rep to provide more information on the value of pharmacogenomics and implementation of that piece. If you're looking for a pharmacogenomics coach, I can be reached on LinkedIn and also to listen on PGX for Pharmacists podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the social media platforms as well. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast with Dr. Christina Madison. Dr. Madison's mission is focused on spreading knowledge about public health to create better communities. The Public Health Pharmacist is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Christina Madison. I am your host for the Public Health Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Today, I have another extraordinary guest, which I had the pleasure and honor of meeting at Pain Week. And today, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Steve Ziegler. Dr. Ziegler, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you, especially after seeing that amazing keynote address that you gave at Pain Week this year in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, thank you, Dr. Madison. Good morning. I understand it's very early on your side of the United States. Well, you're worth it. (laughs) So uh, let's just dive right in. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, we we chatted a little bit before we started to record. And, you know, you were telling me that, you know, pain week is something that you really enjoy and that um, you've had the ability to go for almost a decade or about a decade, and, and you've had the uh, the opportunity to speak. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Pain Week and sort of how you uh, came to be um, sort of this amazing advocate for those um, needing pain management and um, wanting to, uh, you know, help with access to uh, needed medication? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, we'd have to, uh, I think, go back uh, several years, uh, at least well over a decade, um, is that um, when I was in college, I originally wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And um, I came from a medical family, and so I had a pre-existing interest, in, you know, in the area. And I was torn between anesthesiology and political science, um, also actually comedy as well, but that's a whole nother story. And uh but I had a course in my third year college, uh, religion and contemporary social issues, and it focused on um, medical ethics. And so I, I, I think I found my niche in that regard. Um, so I, I then became a, ultimately a political scientist decades later. Um, so I, I went to 
I went to law school uh, because I'm kind of a I'm a reformer at heart. And I thought that uh, we there's an awful lot of ways that the law can uh, bring about reform. I practiced law for a couple of years, and and I I think my summation of the, of the practice of law is is a hostile work environment. And uh, as pleasant as people in your office may be, it's just that it's uh, it's a system that's based on adversity. And here I wanted to solve problems. And uh, but while, while I was in Michigan at the time, uh, living in Michigan, Jack Kevorkian was assisting um, in the death of terminally ill patients. And that in and of itself is its own interesting um, topic. And in fact, a topic that I examined in that third year of college. But uh, one of my concerns was is that whether this idea of assisted death and, and liberty is, is its own fascinating area. But what I was concerned about is if people were accelerating their death because their pain and symptoms were not being managed. And so that subsequently brought me to graduate school and Washington State University and where I focused on the uh, medical, legal and political barriers to the treatment of pain and as well as end of life decision making. Wow, that is so honorable. And I, I will tell you, as as a pharmacist, I, I have colleagues that work in pain and palliative care, and it really, truly is a calling. And so it sounds like, you know, that this was really a calling for you um, once you sort of found your niche. Yeah, it was it enabled me to bring back my interest in anesthesiology and medicine um, and reform. And uh, so one of the things at the time in the year 2000 was the Pain Relief Promotion Act of 2000, and Congress tried to take the cheap way out to trying to solve a very complex problem. And so I, I set about, um, I became a professor, and, uh, and then ultimately um, that a lot of my work was in pain policy is, and um, access to essential medicines, particularly palliative medicines. The challenge was, how can we ensure access to those who need it, while at the same time prevent abuse? And it's been a struggle uh, throughout time about how we can achieve this balance. And right now, I, the pendulum has swung in the other direction, and an awful lot of people are suffering, whether they're in chronic pain or at end-of-life pain. And in fact, uh, remarkably, one of the significant barriers to the relief of pain is um, are drug laws and drug control policies that focus more on preventing abuse than actual access. Uh, millions of people throughout the developing world, um, men, women, and children who are dying of cancer have, have limited to no access to liquid morphine, which costs only pennies a day. And the reason that is primarily, as the Lancet post uh, pointed out, is restrictive drug laws that take that focus primarily on uh, um, preventing abuse, even though it's small in comparison to the amount of access that is ultimately needed across the world. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many, you know, ways that you can look at this. And I feel like, you know, as somebody who's an advocate for public health, this thought process around pain and pain not being legitimate, right? And people feeling like they're not being believed. Uh, I think is a concept that is is pervasive throughout, um, especially the last 10 years as we've been dealing with the opioid crisis, right? And so when you look at, you know, people who are disenfranchised, people who lack access to reliable and quality medical care, what are they left to do? 
but to seek out and to self-medicate. And, and I think that when we really examine the, the origins of why people experience pain and why people are trying to seek medication, then we, we get more at the heart of, of what we really should be doing, which is giving people opportunity and fixing, you know, problems at a, a very granular level, right? So if you have uh, unstable housing, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, all of these things directly impact whether or not you can have a fulfilled life. And if you feel like you're, you're destitute, what, what are you left to do, right? What are you left to seek? You're not going to get preventative care. You're not going to you know, manage chronic medical conditions. And unfortunately, that leads to the development of pain. And so I think this, you know, the war on drugs, right, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, it, it really set us up for, you know, for harm for way more people than it helped. So um, I know that was probably a long-winded response to what you said, but I, I truly commend you for the work that you're doing because I think it is, it is needed, it is necessary, and it is um, one of these things that I think that there is not enough attention being brought to is that we are harming people who need pain management who need these medications by thinking that we are we're somehow managing the opioid crisis or managing you know people who shouldn't be getting these therapies um absolutely people are essentially looking for relief you know and uh, un unfortunately for a variety of reasons we all do not have universal access to health care um, one particular political party which shall remain unnamed has has fought uh, um, the idea that people have universal access to health insurance. And, um, you know, in prenatal care, for example, pennies spent on prenatal care can save millions of dollars. And that type of thinking needs to be applied to the entire life cycle. Uh, unfortunately, however, we, we at least politically, do not, are not focused on actually solving problems. You know, we, we see the childlike behavior that we see in United States Congress, but are they really solving any problems? And if they implement any type of policies, whether they be drug policies or some other type of intervention, what they fail to do is actually evaluate to determine if that intervention actually works. Prior to the pandemic, I founded a nonprofit and it was the Center for Effective Regulatory Policy and Safe Access. And the focus of it was to evaluate drug control policies that the government creates to see how they can be improved and whether they actually work. And because that is something that government never does. They create these policies and never find out if they actually work. Now, of course, I would have still been doing that, but I was about $3 million short of the $3 million I needed to continue on the nonprofit. And, and, uh, but the pandemic, of course, played a significant role in, in that demise. Well, it, it's it, a dream deferred is not a dream denied. That is what I will say to you. <laughs> well, it is. So, it, it certainly has been a, a struggle, and I, like I indicated in in my uh, in my keynote, is that 
you know, it's, um, it's not who gets knocked down it, who gets back up. And sometimes you just have to keep rowing. Yeah, I agree. And, and obviously the work that you're doing is, is so needed that, um, even if it is, you know, somewhat smaller than you would have liked, I do think that it is still a worthy, uh, worthy, um, task. And so, you know, when we think about public policy and you think about laws and regulations, um, I, I think a lot of people feel like, you know, they're, they're, they're called to make change or they're called to uh, feel like they want to make an impact. But what they don't understand uh, is that so much of how things are run is based on regulation and, and laws. And so if you want to make any kind of meaningful change, you actually really need to get involved in the legislative process. And, you know, when we talk about the government making these, you know, these rules and regulations without having any concept of what the intended end user result is, I do think that that's where we need to involve some of the allied health professional, you know, boards Right. So like the board of nursing, the board of pharmacy, board of medical examiners, because then we we can really use that collective power to tell these regulators right in Washington. Hey, you know, when you make these decisions in a vacuum without considering the impact on healthcare providers, right, which feel strangled because we can't provide the best care we want to to our patients that they really need to 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 take a look at that and to see hey you know the these these decisions that you're making have consequences and so i i really appreciated um you know some of the the comments that you made during your keynote about the fact that we kind of you know that that one law that was passed in what was it 2000 yeah. it, it just it drastically changed the landscape of how we ended up managing chronic pain for over, you know, almost two decades. And, and it's, it's shocking that we're in the place that we are today. So, you know, I, I'm trying not to be a Debbie Downer, but what can we do? What can we do to help these things? Tell, tell me there's a way out. Sure. <laughs> Dr. Well, Ziegler. I, I think there is. And one of, uh, one of the things that all of us, I think, struggle with, is that we first got to realize that most of us are somewhere in the middle. The idea that we're on the extreme is something that's manufactured by self-serving politicians in the news media. But the reality is, is that we have more in common than we are different and we all feel pain. And we also all want to be heard. And what would help is, and here's the, the challenge, is more political participation. And when I talk about political participation, that means certainly registering to vote and voting. Uh, of course, we see that there is an assault on the right to vote in the United States by people claiming of the need to change um, the ability of people to um, gain access to the, to the polls. And, and that's a scary proposition in a democracy. But, but so we have to be very careful of any attempts um, that would interfere with the right to vote. Um, secondly, is that it's important to also participate in the primary elections um, 
in the, instead of waiting till November in your state. And what I mean by that is it's kind of like what happens is that more, unfortunately, not everyone participates in the primary elections to determine who will be on the ultimate ballot. And if you have nothing but extremists uh, participating in the primary election, you will end up with extremist politicians. And what we need are middle of the road politicians and those that see the gray. Things are not black and white. Um, life is difficult and so are problems. And we, we need politicians that represent us. And that is the majority of us who are in the middle. So that would certainly be one thing to do is, is to elect those people that are actually looking out for us instead of uh, corporations or other vested interests that have a lot of money, unlike the most of the rest of us do. Well, um, I, I hope that everyone takes that to heart because when we all participate in the process, I think better decisions are made. And, and I agree with you that, um, you know, that we all need to participate in our civic duty to exercise our right to vote. And, you know, when you participate in the process, that's, that's when you can make meaningful change. So um, with that being said, I think that's a, a great segue into my next question for you is if you could tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel. And I know you had said that you uh, dabbled a bit in uh, uh, comedy, um, but uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, politic pain politics. Uh, sure. Because sure. I, <laughs> I, I think have... it's such a great way to like deliver a message. You know, humor is is always a great um, great equalizer. Well, I've I've got a web page. Um, it's at painpolitics.com. and um, I also have a YouTube channel by the name of Pain Politics. And by going to painpolitics.com, it it will tell the viewer a little bit more about me. Um, you can have access to many of my videos on YouTube and you can actually click on the pain politics uh, logo and that'll bring you to the YouTube channel. Uh, when I was uh, with the nonprofit, I was, um, we, uh, the, the pandemic was uh, extremely difficult and I uh, pivoted to a podcast and, um, but ultimately decided after a year, um, it was an uphill battle. Uh, although there are millions of dollars um, that are funding questionable activities throughout the United States, um, there's not that uh, much money to be able to feed the hungry, um, to bring about actual reform in a variety of other areas. So I, I had to close the nonprofit and I pivoted to a um, to YouTube. And one of the things that was attractive about YouTube was that it was a visual medium as well. And um, people, uh, we construct our lives around stories and that's essentially what YouTube is, is a story and, and stories. And so I created this YouTube channel um, and I um, subsequently um, published uh, digital films um, that focused on the, the matters that concern me. Um, certainly I used satire in the process, um, because the, the whole purpose of satire is not only so much of it as an outlet for my sense of humor, but but it's it's a way of, to, of disarming. It's a way of getting information. It's a way of getting people to think. And um, that's the benefit of satire. Satire has enabled us to, throughout the centuries, to actually bring about change, you know, in governments and in policies. And um, 
So I, I set about to do that. I, I, I find, um, I, and again, like with my podcast, I'm essentially the head chef and chief bottle washer doing all the editing and the, and the filming myself, but I, I, I enjoy it immensely. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, and so I've subsequently continued to perfect it over time. Um, and so I, and I, I expect to continue with that, but it's a way to essentially reach people and to, to, to raise awareness about the need that the way things are need to change and that millions of people are suffering and we all seek relief from suffering and we can have suffering in many ways. Well, I commend you for what you're doing. And again, like I said, uh, you know, humor um, and comic relief are, are definitely um, a, a vehicle that I think that most people um, resonate with. And so I think that that's amazing that you're um, using your love of comedy um, as well as your passion for uh, advocacy and work around um, you know, those who need access to care, needed medications, um, and, and dignity, right? I think a lot of this is, you know, wanting to serve people and make sure that they, they don't feel marginalized. And, and again, uh, you know, as someone who works in public health and with vulnerable populations, I think um, you know, something that you said earlier really resonated with me was that, you know, people just really want to be heard, you know, and, and I think that's really what it comes down to is, you know, don't marginalize me. Don't tell me what I, I need or that what I think, just listen to me. And I think ultimately when we listen to others and when we hear them and when we affirm them, um, it, it really does, uh, a world of good. And, um, and I hope that, um, more people hear this, um, conversation and, and choose to do that as well. So Dr. Sigler, thank you, or Ziegler, thank you so much again for your time today. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. I hope that our audience, uh, chooses to follow you and your journey. Um, so if people want to get a hold of you, talk to you more, um, follow your journey, um, your possibility of maybe reopening the nonprofit <laughs> um, in the future, right? Like I said, a dream deferred is not a dream denied. Um, uh, or if they want to, you know, obviously uh, view some of your YouTube episodes, what would be the best way for, for people to get a hold of you and to see more of you? Sure. They could uh, go to my webpage at paintpolitics.com and there's a form they can, uh, a contact form that they can sign up for and um, provide their email. And then they can email me um, from that. Um, and then they could go to YouTube and subscribe to my channel. And so, and on YouTube, there's also contact information for business inquiries. Um, so they should feel, be Feel, feel free to do that. And, and also feel free to create their own YouTube channels and their own podcasts and to follow their passions about improving people's lives. Fantastic. Any parting words of wisdom that you would like to leave people with as far as like your mantra for life and how you, you just, you're so impactful in what you do. Well, I guess the thing is, is that, um, Margaret Mead had a wonderful saying of which I, 
I don't have it in front of me at the time, but it's on my LinkedIn profile is that, you know, a small group of people can change the world. And that's largely the only type of people who ever have. Um, of course, that's not exactly the quote, but this is essentially the, the message. And the other thing is to think about is that when we get into discussions, is that the realization is that we, I think we need to all bring a certain amount of humility to each and every discussion to realize that ultimately we could be wrong. And we, if we recognize that we could be wrong, I think that's the way that we can engage in better conversations, at least compared to what we are seeing today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I do agree with you that our civil discord has hit, you know, some very grim milestones, uh, especially lately. And so I, ho I, I hope that we can all be civil, that we can all do uh, very much what you said, which is to come to a conversation knowing that there's a possibility that we may be wrong and that that may hopefully uh, bore out better conversations and then hopefully uh, better solutions to our problems. Thank you well, thank, so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Madison. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. Time is our most precious asset, and we thank you for spending your time with us and Dr. Madison, the public health pharmacist. Learn more at thepublichealthpharmacist.com.